Welcome to Burning Platforms, a podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. I'm Peter Lewis. This episode, we're taking a deep dive into the information reforms currently being proposed by the federal government with La Trobe Uni Professor of Political Communication, Andrea Carson. But first, our regular wrap of the latest tech and political news with Digital Rights Watch Chair, Lizzie O'Shea. The biggest news in platforms over the last um, couple of weeks, we've got ourselves some brand new threads, Lizzie. Um, There is a new alternative to the dying enterprise that used to be called Twitter. Um, Apparently, if you're on Instagram, you just click a button, you've got your own new network. How's it going over there? I'm not on threads. Uh, it is interesting. They Doesn't have... mean you can't be an expert on it. <laughs> no, I feel I definitely already am. Uh, because, you know, if you're an observer of Meta, I think it's not difficult to become an expert on threads pretty quickly. Um, yeah, it is interesting. So they've had some of the fastest take up, I think the fastest sign up for an app in history. Uh, so many millions of people joining, mainly because it's extremely easy to do. If you've got an Instagram account, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, and so people then move from one to the other. Um, you know, the format is largely the same as Twitter. There's some key functionality missing, but the idea is to have short form conversations, as a form of micro blogging. Um, but the, you know, the reviews are, are pretty funny, I must say, when they're coming in, because it feels like the um, the transportation of the Instagram mindset into a thread setting hasn't really worked. And journalists have been commenting on this because journalists, of course, were some of the bit- biggest addicts when it comes to Twitter and followed only then by politicians. And I think they're kind of missing the snark and the clapbacks that you would normally see. And are instead <laughs> is it really like struggling. a shift from like Instagram's look at me and this is listen to me? Is it a different <laughs> sensibility? <laughs> Yeah, without any of the good photos, you know, and and the the spamming of people's feeds as well with all sorts of influencer content. Like, what was the primary currency on Instagram? Was you know feel good content? You know, I've seen meta presentations on this where they talk about that. You go on that app to feel good. I mean, it's much more difficult if you're a young woman because then you mostly go on there to feel bad. But then under the auspices of feeling good, you know. Um, but the idea is it was supposed to be an up- uplifting space, so to speak, um, or much more anodyne, no politics. Like that's you know, in fact, one of the the comments of the designer um, at Meta that they would try and avoid that kind of discussion coming into it. But then what's the point? Because you don't even get the good photos. You don't even get the airbrushing. Um, instead, you get, as as one journalist described it, you know, Courtney Kardashian asking for recipes that involve Fig Newtons. Like, it is extremely weird to me that they are prioritising celebrity content and, and spamming people's feeds with that because I don't think it's going to be long before people will switch off. And this is one of the things I, I really want to watch. Like, they haven't actually got a plan or they're not implementing a plan to monetize the um, platform as yet. So it feels like we've got a little bit of the worst of all worlds. They're, they're kind of experimenting with promoting certain kinds of content that they expect will then be capable of being monetized without actually doing so and not giving people the option to kind of curate their own feed in the way they would like. So it's an extremely weird time, but I guess everybody's in a hurry to try and find an alternative to Twitter and Med is no exception to that. Andrea, the the idea of finding or building a virtual public square is this holy grail. This feels a bit more like a piazza or a, a plaza, um, what's going on here. But if you've got the network effect of Meta, you of course you'd give it a crack. Um, what are your reflections on this 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 rapid launch, which I think even Meta admits has gone faster to market because they could see the real-life implosion in front of them? Yeah, so a, a quick disclaimer, I'm not on threads yet. I've only just been dragged onto Instagram and that wasn't really by choice. That was because I had to sign up for a research project I was doing. Um, I'm certainly on Twitter and I'm on Facebook. Not that I use Facebook all that much, but I write a lot about it. Uh, so if you can bear with me not having been on threads, but Lizzie might have already answered one of my questions, and that is, yes, it got this great sign up. What was it, 30 million within a week or something? But how many people have jumped off again? You don't, you never get those figures of those that have tried it and thought, yeah, no, nah, not for me. Um, but in answer to your question, Peter, it reminds me a bit, last year I was in Paris at a big communications conference, the biggest one we have in academia called the ICA. And the guest speaker was Tim Berners-Lee, who you would know as the founder of the World Wide Web. And he was bringing his computer science sensibilities to the stage, talking about how he was developing a new public sphere. 
uh, because some things were, you know, they got wrong with World Wide Web. We'd started off as this wonderful, beautiful democratic dream of open sharing and we're all going to learn and then it turned into a cesspool. And he got, I think he was shocked by the audience reaction he got, which was really hostile. And the reason it was so hostile is what we're talking about here, and that is until you learn the lessons of why it goes so sour and what's broken with the original models, you can't just keep populating new ones. Uh, even if you tweak it here and there, you have to stop and address, well, why did the democratic dream not work the way that it was envisaged the first time when Berners-Lee mm. put together the World Wide Web? And I think that's a similar problem that we're seeing with threads that Meta hasn't worked out yet how to deal with the toxic conversations and flow of information on its other platforms. So why does it think this is going to be a utopian paradise on threads unless it's, you know, put together new ways of um, of allowing freedom of expression but not, um, well, not curtailing that and uh, allowing the best of commentary? And if it has done that, then share it with us. Yeah, it, it goes to um, our friend Cory Doctorow's inshittification of the platforms, the natural tendency of any platform at the point at which it's commercialising to become really, really crap. Um, yeah, but interesting, this one's crap before it has even monetized. <laughs> it's just straight in the straight in the system. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is an interesting discussion about threads. Three people that aren't on threads. I'm not on anything, so I'm an expert on digital platforms by being off the platforms. Although I might add, a reflective. I was reflecting, Lizzie. That the journal, poor old journalists and influence like political influencers losing their home. It's interesting to see the other sorts of models that are emerging, particularly around Substack and communities around journalism. And I, I yeah, since getting off all of them at the beginning of the year, I've just subscribed to lots of newsletters, and I feel like I get what I need from that. Semaphore is fantastic, which is actually where I sourced a few of these, which is almost like a news aggregator. And there's a few other really good newsletters on areas of interest, and I, I just feel that an issue doesn't need my hot take. Like I, 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 I'd rather just sort of let it sit and give it room to breathe. So I'm not going to jump onto threads any faster than I'm going to jump onto Mastodon. But um, it is interesting that it may be, it's being read as the beginning of the end of Twitter, but it may also be the beginning of the end of that sort of constant, the, the need for a platform that is just text brain farts. Like I just well, don't yeah. know. Well, I must say one of the, Good things I think about the demise about of Twitter is that I do think journalists paid a disproportionate amount of attention to it as a platform. And if you didn't have a presence there, you're often beyond their gaze. And um, also what attracted uh, journalists' attention sometimes wasn't the best conduct. Uh, so it had this tendency to kind of warp public debate because journalists spent so much time on there. And I'm not necessarily critical of them for doing that. It's just that the place where they had to do a lot of their work wasn't actually designed for that purpose and there wasn't much desire or interest in kind of thinking beyond that. And maybe there's too much pressure on them in the modern newsroom to Mm. be able to do anything differently. So the end of that in that sense I think is important because it requires then journalists to have the space to actually have an interest in looking beyond that platform and um, do a bit more considered thoughtful work. Also thinking about how their um, work will be received, whether it will be in a more slow format, shall we say, like email. I mean, I think there's other arguments around how that format also has a tendency to increase polarization. I read a really interesting article. I'll send uh, I can, you know, we can find a way to put it with the with the episode about the given how... that we, none of us are on social platforms, we'll find a way of getting it out to the world. <laughs> hey, I'm exactly. still on Twitter. Okay. Yeah, we'll sign mine. But it was about essentially the polarization that comes through niche um, media in the form of newsletters in particular, and that that's often um, uh, framed or or the position that's put is that that's in contrast to mainstream media. And in fact, like mainstream media now, if anything, has less of sway. It's very difficult to create a, a, a any kind of unified public space and the mainstream media's usual um, commercial advantages in doing that no longer really apply. And it is interesting, I think, to return to some of those debates. What does the media landscape look like in the absence of um, mainstream media holding that kind of uh, weight, I suppose, or that occupying that space? And in contrast now, something like Twitter disappearing where you knew that that, that would be where some of these debates occurred, even if it was in a flawed format, uh, and then the push towards niche, mm. nichefication and shittification, everything. But like the, um, the niche media that comes with newsletters and the like. And I think it is, you know, there's probably PhDs being written about this right now. And I think we are witnessing this change in real time. So, Lizzie, it seems to me that you've 
already diagnosed that Twitter's well and truly broken and it's on the way down? You don't think it's beyond redemption that it could rebound? Oh, I, I, you know, I did see someone speculate that Elon Musk might sell it off when he's bored um, at a very cut cut price. And I think that's certainly possible, but I think he's too busy setting fire to billions of dollars to actually run the platform properly. No. So I think it's somewhat terminal and certainly in the format that it's in, I don't think it will continue. I think the, the dysfunction of the platform is starting to emerge. Do you, do you not agree? What do you think? Uh, I'm so, I don't know. There's still debates and people on there and I'm still picking up some useful um, academic insights serendipitously. The comment you made, though, about how it's been populated by journalists, I think is an interesting one. And I think academics also have a bias towards Twitter, um, particularly in research, because up until very recently, they were able to access the API to be able to, um, you know, measure and test what public debate was. Of course, Twitter has now shut down its API and you can see how upset that's um, made many researchers, but it really did skew the research that when we were looking at issues, whether it's Trump or whatever else, often the platform that was overexposed was Twitter and that was because of the easy access. It's very hard to get equivalent data from Facebook. You might be able to do it through CrowdTangle, but Facebook's also threatening to close that any day. Um, and that's only the public-facing pages. And Reddit, of course, also has just shut down its API. So from a research perspective, there has been a disproportionate amount of focus on the platforms that made access easier. Now that they're gone, that poses an interesting question for how we're going to research en masse these public opinion questions. Mm. Speaking of the media, we'll move it on. Um, Canada's um, been in a tussle with Meta over their version of the news media bargaining code. I know you've been keeping a close eye on this, Andrea. Um, what does it mean to um, news and um, platforms in Canada and what do you think it's going to mean to the news media bargaining code in Australia? Yeah, it could potentially be diabolical. Um, listeners will remember that Australia introduced its news media bargaining code in 2021 and just before it did, there was an 11th hour grandstanding with uh, Google sending around a campaign, those little um, yellow triangles saying that the search engine wouldn't work the way that we expect it to if the legislation was passed. And Facebook, of course, went one step further and acted on its threat and pulled um, news off the its platform for about a week, which also um, perhaps inadvertently captured a whole heap of emergency services at the time of the bushfires. So um got a real backlash. Not a great look, yeah. But and in Canada it's the same playbook. So Canada's passed its online news act. It has um been passed in the last couple of weeks. It doesn't come into being for another six months. Um and Google and Facebook are both experimenting right now with how they're going to limit news. They both said they won't have news in the Canadian sphere anymore on their platforms. Some sites are doing workarounds of how you can get past that, set up a VPN or use Bing or whatever else. But in answer to your question about what's it going to mean for Canadian news, well, they're in a similar situation to Australia where they've got the broken business model for mainstream media. Um, they've had lots of closures, rolling redundancies over many waves. Uh, the news ecosystem has got smaller. There's been some startups that were... Um, hoping to prosper with the money that was going to come in from this. If Google and Meta don't have news on their platform, then there's no value exchange. They don't have to pay the news organisations any of the money that they have been banking on, which has been over $300 million they've been anticipating per year. And just to put that in context, last year, and we don't have precise figures on this, which is a real flaw, I think, in the Australian legislation, it's all behind commercial inconfidence, but it's estimated about 200 million exchanged hands, most of that going to the legacy players. Uh, but that's something, isn't it? It's another revenue stream for news media. Um, we could go into all the things that aren't quite right with the Australian code, which I'm sure you don't want to digress into that right now. But in essence, it's a revenue stream that has propped up legacy media for the last year in Australia, which Canada was hoping to tap into as well, and now it's got a big question mark about whether that is um, going to happen, even though the law's been passed. 
Yeah, I think the initial bargaining code in Australia was for deals ranging from three to five years. So it may well be that that little sugar hit into the industry might not be ongoing. Um, I, You know, it was a particular moment in time when there was um, an opportunity for the legacy media players to lock in a big deal. Um, one of the things, and we can talk about this in a in a moment, we talk about the broader disinformation um, review that's that's going on. It was also, and a lot, of, I think a lot of people forget this. It was part of a broad package of reforms under the auspices of the Digital Platforms Inquiry of the ACCC, which did not just include giving money to media companies; it included privacy law reform, disinformation, digital literacy. Guess which one was at the front of the queue? <laughs> Guess. Guess who is standing in the way of the rest of the reforms? And um, and here we are, not even be able to, you know, update our privacy laws at the moment. Lizzie, without saying I told you so, um, <laughs> how are you? How are you watching this play out? And um, what are you seeing? Um, the the international, I guess you'd have to call it a failure of the bargaining code to land internationally. Like they're they're not allowing this to become a global precedent. Um, I think it's a it's a rhetorical point of engagement but it's not landing the way it landed in Australia what does that mean to what happens next over here yeah it's it's hard to know isn't it because I do think that news as we know it needs another revenue stream and you know you're right in that respect Andrea that's what this money obviously was doing but it's not sustainable in the long term I mean I when at the time of the Australian news media embargoing code, I remember wondering, like, if you were designing social media platforms from scratch, would you include news on them? Because part of the whole problem with how news is um, consumed and shared is that it's sometimes uh, shaped by the context of a social media platform. And maybe it's better to keep those things separate, that social media platforms are for sharing photos and talking to your friends maybe and you do other things for your news. And you, you might be able to create other kinds of platforms for news. You know, there could be an alternative method for distribution for um even collaboration or you know commentary and the like and you know and so in some respects it's sort of difficult to um lament the demise of news being available on these social media platforms with that perfect model in mind I suppose or or certainly improved but I understand that doesn't really solve the problem of what you do about paying journalists a a decent wage and making sure that quality journalism is created and I don't know you know we talked about this at the time I sort of think that this Personally, I think that the state has to step in in some format, whether that's making it uh, cheaper to kind of um, produce news in different kinds of ways, whether it's subsidising um, employment in the industry, um, whether it's well, one, of the, one of the recommendations was actually for tax deductibility for yeah. donations, and that hasn't yeah. moved through, has it, Andrew? It hasn't, but I think um, that question's popped up again, and we might mm. see we might see that be, uh, you know, get a little bit more salience as time goes on. Mm. Well, also investment in the public broadcaster, it sort of beggars belief to me because I feel like the public broadcaster, for every dollar you invest, you get massive returns in terms of the improvement of democracy, in terms of like the accessibility of good quality material in regional and rural areas, for example, that are otherwise poorly serviced by mainstream media organisations. And I feel like some of those um, problems are kind of coming to the fore as we move through the referendum as well and the campaign leading up to the referendum where you realise that the potential for, you know, we're going to talk about this in a minute, but disinformation to be using these platforms in this way as um, that they somehow gain legitimacy by being sources of news and, um, you know, very supposedly truth actually means that the debate is harder to have meaningfully and um, you do, yeah, anyway, I can see a situation in a few years' time where there isn't news on these platforms if um, if big markets for, for Meta and Google and the like continue to push for these kinds of codes that they will be eventually stripped away and once the functionality is there, it will be easy to do in all jurisdictions and, in fact, they might start looking for other products and ways in which mm. they can start selling news to people in, in a different kind of platform and, you know, um, there's upsides to that in terms of how we have these discussions and obviously there's downsides if we don't address the actual structural problems with the production of media to ensure mm. that we have um, quality um, journalism that's being produced in a variety of regional and um, social contexts. It's the other, um, sorry, Andrea, just because I want to throw you into this bit, which is that the other part of this is that the value exchange of news around machine learning. So News Limited's head has been pushing the narrative out quite hard that news media companies should be um, not just giving away the access to engines just to look at all the news to learn. 
um, and that's it. That that's the next wave, isn't it? Yeah, I think it probably is. I mean, Australia um, was the first in the world to use competition law for its news media bargaining code. And I, I wouldn't quite put a lid yet on the contagion effect that that's had. At the moment, the UK is negotiating a news media bargaining code. Brazil has one that's up in its upper house at the moment. And there's a big conference going on in Johannesburg with the Global South. Um, South Africa is looking very closely at Australia's news media bargaining code. And Indonesia's even been looking at it um, through presidential decrees. So other countries are looking at this, which is making the platforms very nervous because clearly Australia is a very small market. You can um, throw a few bones there and um, pacify the Australians. But when you've got um, countries with massive populations that are looking at doing this and showing success. But one of the things that they can do is look at what Australia didn't put in its news media bargaining code. And one of those is, as you say, Peter, the next movement of the value exchange of training. If Google and Facebook start producing their own news through generative AI or chat GPT, whatever functions they want to use, um, they're training that on large news corpuses. And those news corpuses are coming from mainstream media and mainstream media uh, are, are rightly saying, well, there's value there. Um, we don't want to give that away if you're using it for training your generative AI products. So that needs to be included in the next iteration of these um, bills and legislation. So that's probably one to watch to um, see how these other countries adapt. The other thing I would say is Australia never did a direct line to say that the money needs to be spent back on journalism, even though that's the essence of the bill uh, or the, the reason for the policy. And Canada, rightly, I think, saw that as a weakness and made it very clear that uh, any funds that come in get spent back on quality, not just any journalism, but qual that journalism that meets a particular threshold. Yeah, one of our concerns has been, I think, that some of that money has actually been used by media companies to be, become more like digital platforms rather than investing in journalism, which on the AI thing strikes me, you also shared the link to the German newspaper that's training journos to do AI. So the end of this will be media companies producing news content to train AIs to replace their own journalists. And then at which point does you don't need journalists at all? Yeah, it's Space Odyssey 2001, isn't it? Okay, computer. Yeah. Um, let's move on. To set up the discussion on disinformation, I think it actually starts with the digital platforms inquiry where Rod Sims came up, as we said earlier, with a number of recommendations to look at both the market effects, but unlike a lot of regulators and people forget this, the ACCC has a double remit. It's got competition and consumer. And the disinformation piece was very much as part of the consumer cohort. And the you're the expert in this, Andrea, so I'm not going to presume to set it up in too much detail, but it is one of the recommendations that has been moving forward. So we kind of reconnected on a, a consult the other day. What, what is the, where is the process up to? And then we can sort of step out. Why is there such a hullabaloo arising around it at this moment? Yeah, um, that's absolutely right. That's a good setup. Out of that very important 2019 digital platforms um, review that the ACCC did, the two major policy initiatives that have come out of that, and as you said before, there were others, but the two that have had traction was what we've just spoken about, the News Media Bargaining Code, and dealing with mis disinformation. And in dealing with this second part, you need to really look to Europe, which has been ahead of the curve in addressing these problems. It developed a voluntary um, dis and misinformation code back in 2018. And Europe did a number of reviews on that, four or five of them, and recognised that while it was making some inroads, getting the digital platforms to take responsibility for fake news on their sites, there are shortcomings that come with voluntary codes. And the biggest one is that it's opt-in, it's voluntary by its definition, and that the platforms were cherry-picking which parts of the code they were going to perform well at and which ones they were going to ignore. 
Australia seems to be a cycle or two behind where Europe is. So we started off in 2021 with a mis- and disinformation code as well that was really similar um, in many respects to the European Union model of a voluntary code. The EU has moved now to mandatory co-regulation with its Digital Services Act, and that's where Australia is now heading as well, seeing that that while the voluntary code was a good starting point, it you, you need to um, have a bit more stick that goes with the carrot. And that's what the um, what's happening in the Australian space now. And so there's a draft exposure bill that's out with ACMA being the Australian Communication Media Authority, which um, is looking at the government giving it new powers to be able to um, oversee these mandatory codes. So um, some of the coverage around this has um, been from both Meta and some of the conservative politicians. Using my favourite BS term, I'll read from the Herald. Um, Tech giant Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, says it is concerned new, new legislation will have a chilling effect on free speech, which is a term that I find really whenever there is any attempt to regulate anything to do with um information on either platforms or media it's having a chilling effect i'm still not quite sure what that means but it is creating a real pushback on this um not just from um the platforms but i think as we observed albeit all off the record so we're not going to talk about it in detail there was the vibe that there was not a whole lot of love for this from media companies either which is kind of bizarre isn't it because one of the things that's come out of the draft bill is that um, news media is exempt from coverage of being classified as missile disinformation. And we all know here that sometimes mis- and disinformation does make its way into mainstream media. So they've got a free pass on that one so far um, with this draft legislation. The other aspect of that is um, this idea of freedom of speech. I mean, News media curate news all the time, decide what voices go in, what voices go out. They don't just let any, well, you know, just any random thought go into a news story um, because they want to have a quality product in the ideal sense. Uh, And this is an attempt to try and clean up the public sphere to um, remove some of the very real harmful effects that come from mis- and disinformation And disinformation here is defined as um, fake news that's spread deliberately, whereas misinformation, it may not be deliberate, but it can be harmful nonetheless. And if the pandemic taught us anything, it's that some of the misinformation that went around about the treatments and um, the causes of COVID actually led to real-world deaths. Um, One of the most startling was in Iran where... uh, People were told that if they had highly concentrated alcohol in its purest thought form, they could um, eradicate the virus. And that led to um, hundreds of hospitalizations and many deaths, which have been published in medical journals. So, you know, this is not just a, a theoretical problem. It's one that does cause harm. We haven't even gone into the harm it does for the democratic process or social cohesion, electoral integrity. Uh, and the hate speech also that flows. So, but just to be clear, this is not about the government coming into platforms with a sensor pen and saying this bit of information's out, this bit's okay. All it is doing is saying you platform that makes your money out of the flow of information need to have processes in place. And if we ask you what those processes are, you need to show to us that they are robust. That's the that's the limit of these laws, isn't it, Andrea? Yeah, that's right. And the difference with what we've currently got with the voluntary model is that at the moment, Telegram and other services are not involved, although encrypted sites won't be here either. But those more, um, uh, what would you say, really fringe platforms have never signed up to the voluntary code. Now they will be compelled to. And there's a series of penalties that will be in place if the platforms do not have a code in place that provides process to be able to show the public how they are dealing with mis- and disinformation on their platforms. They will still be responsible for the content on the platforms. There's no new powers here for ACMA to come in and look at individual pieces of information and to make any determination about what is fake and what's not, which is a real difference between 
um, draconian regimes that do do that. Uh, here I'm thinking of Russia and um, I'm sure listeners can think of other places where, you know, Russia in 2022 passed a fake news bill that it determines what's fake news. If you're found in violation of it, you've got 15 years jail. Uh, and that was done, of course, to stop media criticism and um, political dissent on its war in Ukraine. So some of the uh, fairly histrionic um, commentary <laughs> that's coming out of this. Very academic. <laughs> is, uh, you know, it's, some of that is trying to conflate those anti-fake news laws with what's happening here, which is co-regulation. But can I ask a question? Like, I um, I don't disagree that that's the situation we find ourselves in or how it's being received. But one of the things that kind of worries me about these kinds of regimes is it is knowing how uh, how these platforms make money, knowing what their business model is, they tend to devote as few resources as possible to content moderation because they don't see it as being a specific return on investment other than making the place generally okay or tolerable enough for the majority of their users. So, you know, one of the things that really irks me is we we learn all about it from an insider about how they approach elections and they put intense amounts of resources in Facebook does into um, content moderation during election, elections to deal with, um, you know, essentially fake news, um, nefarious actors and the like. But outside of election periods, it's just a free-for-all you know in some until relatively recently I, I think there were some jurisdictions where they didn't even have content moderators in the language in which they made the platform available and so one of the concerns I think that um that I think it has some validity in relation to these schemes is that if you can imagine that's the kind of mode they're going to take into this they'll they'll rely on automated content removal or flagging and that that will invariably catch content that is legitimately posted um, and usually content that's more controversial, say, or might be, um, you know, uh, uh, maybe polarising, I don't know. But, you know, the, the example in in um, that comes to mind when you talk about content, scanning content for things like violence is like police accountability videos because they look a lot like other kinds of violence videos, but they've obviously got a different political weight. And my worry is that there's, there just won't be the sufficient resources to um, properly account for those people who might be caught up in that low resource um, process for compliance with this bill. And that one of the key things ought to be, in my opinion, um, if you're going to use automated tools to to scan this content and preemptively take it down, is to have in place proper accountability measures, appeal mechanisms that are fast, that are free, that are transparent. I mean, among other things, like I think there's other things they could do that could be far more transparent into, you know, in terms of what content is being shared and, and how often you could slow things down, you could avoid micro-targeting or limit micro-targeting. These are all things that do compromise the business model. And I, I just wonder whether what we're going to get, unfortunately, is something that captures some of these more um, important moments in these online spaces and that's just seen as an unfortunate consequence of dealing with misinformation. Um, and the resources needed to have a, a properly accountable space are not going to be provided by these platforms because it's not in their interest to do so. Anyway, I just wondered what you thought of that idea. I think um, that the perennial challenges for the platforms and, you know, there's a lot of validity in what you're saying, but you're probably more likely to get more resourcing now that there's going to be mandatory co-regulation than voluntary uh, because you will have ACMA looking under the hood to make sure processes are in place and that mis- and disinformation is being dealt with and reported on appropriately. And the public will see that through transparency reports. Um, Meta, for example, does its moderation through AI, as you say, as well as through human um, moderators and has third-party fact-checkers that it pays contracts to. And mind you, some of those third-party fact-checkers are also media um, outlets that get another revenue stream from doing that. Um, Is it a perfect world? Absolutely not. But I do think this is a step closer to dealing with some of these really big global challenges. And, you know, this is not just a problem besetting Australia it's a problem that the world ha- is grappling with and it's front of mind for democratic governments of how do you have quality information in the public sphere because if you don't have it, you end up with uh, what's been touted as an epistemic crisis about how does anyone know what we actually know? How do we know where fact lies? What's the difference between fact mm. and fiction? And this is an attempt to address that. Yeah, Lizzie, I'm just trying to work out what you're saying there. So by analogy. 
So if we think of the platforms distributing information like um, a water company delivering water, like a like the utility analogy, we're saying, or these laws are saying that you as the utility have a obligation to keep your water clean. And you're saying, I reckon they're going to use really crap tools to clean it. So therefore we shouldn't put the responsibility on them. Is that your position? I'm not suggesting we shouldn't put the responsibility for it on them, but I I don't think it's enough to say um, how these things tend to work. And online safety is the other field in which this occurs is there's a an onus that is put on the platform to deal with the problem and that the regulator doesn't necessarily mind how you deal with the problem you just need to deal with it and we need to be confident that you're dealing with it and then what's in the um in reality is that the the people who traditionally get kind of marginalized by these platforms get marginalized once again that can take different formats so what know? approach so, would you take or would you just say well, that it was worse than disease well no 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 I'm, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that because I appreciate that there's a lot to be done like they already have a cure like like I was saying you know when there's an election on they devote enormous resources to making sure that their platform is better than it is normally so they made an announcement last week that they're going to put extra resources on from the voice at the same time as they were saying we shouldn't have laws requiring us to deal with disinformation yeah yeah I mean it's mind-boggling but I suppose what I what the other thing you know if I'm a rights-based person what I think about is what are the rights of users to be able to um be treated with dignity in the event that they're caught up in a system and um, and not given the outcome they think they deserve. And, you know, that's why I talk about appeal rights that are being, that ought to be fast and free um, and transparent. And that's, that's one protection. I mean, I think there are other ways in which you can tackle misinformation. If you do tackle micro-targeting or, um, you know, rapid sharing, you know, like how when WhatsApp limited the number of people that you could share a message with, there was a, a marked improvement in the amount of um, misinformation, whatever you want to call it spam that would tra- travel through that platform but of course micro-targeting and virality of content is partly what the, the, the platforms are aiming for because it's what keeps them profitable so oh, and keep in mind Lizzie the politicians love it yeah so yeah if, if, when it comes to an election campaign they're working hand in glove with the platforms to micro-target using Facebook ads and whatever else to cheaply get their messages out exactly to the voter demographic that they're looking for Exactly. And so one of the things that, I mean, I, I know this sounds glib, but we don't have a Bill of Rights. We don't actually have a protection of freedom of speech. But if you, people did have that, you know, and there is moves now to introduce one, you can see how that would be a counterweight on platforms to think about how they could make sure that right was fulfilled uh, and that people didn't have a claim that it was being ridden over roughshod. Um, and, you know, ACMA can say that they, you know, there's protections in place. It's not the government coming in and taking down content, which is correct. But what we actually, I think, need to aim for is a thought process within these platforms themselves, which thinks, okay, well, we've got to comply with the code that's being developed with ACMA, fine. We also have to think about people's rights and how they can be protected or enforced and do the work to balance these difficult kinds of um, considerations, devote resources to making sure that the platform is then compliant with both rather than this, which is just feels like a bit like a rights-free environment. I mean, it, it doesn't mean necessarily the model is wrong, but it can't be the only way in which misinformation is managed in the economy. Because like you say, I think there'll be people who are perfectly fine with certain kinds of information in the business model of using, making use of the business model of these platforms that then is used so effectively by those who who, who want to spread misinformation for their own purposes. And it's very difficult then to take those kinds of concerns seriously. And yeah, I think it can only be one component of a bigger model. Do you want to tell us a bit about some of the other work you've been doing in um, this field, Andrea? Because obviously um, this is not just a debate about legislation. It's it's actively part of an ecosystem of people with really big minds, such as yourself, trying to think their way through misinformation and disinformation. So just give us an overview of how you approach the issue and some of the work you've been doing. Well, that was a generous introduction. Wasn't it? <laughs> Thanks, yeah. Peter. Uh, I'll take it. Uh, so I guess as a someone who did a PhD in political science but coming with a journalism background, my interest is in the nexus between politics and media in political communication and that space where uh, looking mainly through a media lens at politics um, and looking at the quality of information in the public sphere. And when I first started out, I was looking at high-quality information, evidence-based reporting, quality journalism, and 
that led me down the path of really looking at investigative journalism and how that was being affected by the broken business model. Now, perhaps sadly, I'm at the other end of that scale and I'm looking at low quality information. I'm looking at misinformation, disinformation, and the ways that countries around the globe are managing this very pernicious problem. And one of my recent reports was um, a case study on Singapore and Indonesia and looking at the way those two countries, both of them have slipped in media freedom ranks over the last decade, how they've been managing mis- and disinformation and what they have in common is they've gone um, to introduce anti-fake news laws. And if that's one way of dealing with the problem. We find that across the globe there's probably three major ways that countries are dealing with misinformation. They can go the very brutal way of having fake news laws and making fake news illegal, and I'll talk a bit in a minute about why I think that has a lot of pitfalls. They can go the regulation route, either voluntary or mandatory, which is where the EU and Australia are at. And they usually, if it's a sliding scale, start off voluntary, move to mandatory for all the reasons that Lizzie said. And that is because you can't rely on the platforms necessarily to be model citizens and do these things voluntarily. There needs to be the stick in place. And then the other way governments have been dealing with it is to fund non-legislated or regulated activities such as fact-checkers, um, having digital information campaigns, media literacy campaigns, uh, funding mainstream media, those sorts of things. You don't have to have one without, well, you can do some of those activities at the same time. But at that pointy end of the spectrum with the anti-fake news laws, what I found in Singapore and Indonesia was that it was having, and I know you're going to hate this, Peter, that it was having a real chilling effect on journalism. (laughs) And the reason it was, Look at Singapore, for instance, it introduced POFMA in 2019. In Singapore, they have election campaigns. They've had the same party in place for 63 years, so election campaigns are not quite the way we think about them, but they have them for 10 days. And over there, the government determines uh, whether what is fake news to begin with and whether you're going to be prosecuted for producing fake news. And an analysis of all the people who've been poffed points that it's mainly three groups. It's uh, rival politicians, journalists, and vocal civic society actors. Uh, during election campaigns, it's journalists and politicians that get poffed, and that's when most of the poffed action occurs. And it takes 10 days before you can appeal. So how long is the election campaign in Singapore? It's 10 days. So you can start to see that that's a really great way to shut someone down very quickly is that you put up on their website and all over their news story, this is fake news. And I've got four or five different ways that the law works, um, ranging from putting people in jail to giving Isn't it amazing even that the whole fake news construct, which was actually a Trumpism, has now become a point of reference as well? It's Well, it's always been around. Um Yes, Trump elevated fake news in our lexicon, but fake news is a concept that's been there uh, all through propaganda in world wars or you could go back to the mid, um, I think, the no, maybe the late 1700s when a New York newspaper decided for a bit of fun that it would do a series on what life on the moon was like and that it discovered life on the moon and then after about 10 um, additions it said oh gotcha not really true just a fake news story so it's been around but of course the different difference between that example and now is the virality of the internet that anyone can produce it it can reach the other side of the world in microseconds and once you've scrambled the egg it's very hard to unscramble it you can't reach everyone who got the fake news with the retraction um, which is why it's just so problematic and The other aspect to this is news by definition is something that's new. Fake news is even more exciting than news because you're not bound by the limits of truth. So it gets people's attention because it's usually so sensational, um, more exciting than just the news of the day. So how are you seeing this playing out in the voice campaign at the moment? I know Guardian Australia has been running a great series this week, just looking under the hood at some of the tactics um, that are being played by the No campaign. Um, what are you seeing? Um, 
Well, election campaigns or referenda campaigns are always going to get some mischievous um, stories. We saw that in 2019 with the fake, uh, with the death tax story that um, went both on social media and mainstream media. Uh, I wonder, I mean, one of the questions to ask here is when there is a piece of misinformation which someone might be spreading because they think it is true and they heard it from their grandma or whether it's disinformation where it's a concerted campaign, um, how much does it get amplified when we start talking about specific pieces of it or when it gets picked up in the mainstream media? Um, I think what's one of the bigger problems perhaps with The Voice is that you don't have counter-narratives and strong leadership that um, doesn't give the amplification to all these other more mischievous streams. So I know that's not a perfect answer because these are complex problems and they don't have simple answers. Uh, but it's very difficult to, you know, really measure all the different pieces of information that are going on now that we have plural public spheres. Lizzie? Yeah, I must say, like, it feels to me, particularly on The Voice, that the antidote would be public reporting, um, like a public broadcaster. But when you go on the ABC website, there's not this... Um, you know, they're bound by the charter and it feels a bit like the climate change stuff again where it has to entertain both sides of an argument, which isn't really an, an argument. Like it's, it's oh, just, I, I don't know if that's a fair analogy at all because climate change is fact-driven and here people are entitled to have different perspectives on yeah, the board. But there are, but there are, uh, uh, but there are fact elements. I had a bit of a mm. one-on-one with um, Warren Mundine last night um, where I was trying to make the point on the ABC that they were... The false equivalence is not around facts. It's around um, the social license to the various um, campaigns. So there was Kirsty Parker, who's talking on behalf of 250 signatories of the Uluru Dialogue, representing 1,100 organisations, and Warren Mundine representing Warren Mundine, and that's balance. Like there is mm. something that, and that's the ABC version of balance. So I'm kind of with you, Lizzie. Well, I think that it has to be a different approach because also it does cr- generate misinformation. It's like when there was that parliamentary debate and, and you know, I thought perhaps in a, ill-advisedly Linda Burney said, oh, well, no, the, the voice couldn't advise on getting rid of Australia Day. Well, actually what it could do is anything, but it's it's probably not going to do that. And that it's the, the we're voting on the format of it and, it, you know, what happens is that if it's successful, the government can take advice, you know. Like mm. there's ways to answer the question which don't feed into um, what essentially then becomes misinformation. Uh, and then you have the other side of politics, you know, saying, are we going to have asking question after question in question time that's completely disingenuous that is not trying to contribute to a fact-rich uh, public sphere but instead undermine it. And I don't know, in that circumstance, I don't think it is just a, well, on one level it's just a factual matter, but it's actually a, a debate about power and politics and I'm not sure we've got a media that's sophisticated enough to cope with that. And the concept of balance doesn't really cut it in that set, in, in, in this kind of setting in my opinion. But, you know, I, I appreciate it's a massively complex issue, but I have a nasty suspicion in six months' time we're going to be pretty regretful for allowing this kind of space mm. to exist. Yeah, and I think it, what's interesting, and maybe to round out our conversation, Andrea, it, it, there's the false equivalence meets the um, momentum of platform-based information, which is driven on anger and amplification, which is totally inimicable to the proposition of creating a consensus to change the constitution for First Nations people. Um, Ben Smith, the um, former editor of BuzzFeed, has got a terrific book out called Traffic, which sort of says if you wanted to come up with the perfect bit of viral content, it's the piece that says you're a racist, no, you're a racist, no, you're a racist. And that's kind of almost like the voice debate, (laughs) creating that sort of content. And then you add in, you know, the big news this week, Sky News is going to be doing a 24-hour voice channel and their business model is just to cut up YouTube and make money of it um, in the United States. So um, all these distortions. So in a way, I guess it's not just disinformation. The whole ecosystem is brittle and polluted and we're seeing it play out in real life. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean. We also need to be a little bit careful that we're not conflating negative campaigning with misinformation. And negative campaigns have been around a long time um, where you use negative emotions um, to be able to get attention 
Trump was an expert at that with the build the wall. Not many people resort to hope because, you know, there's something very primal about the way that we think that we want to hear about something fearful because we then uh, as individuals think we can protect ourselves against this. The perhaps um, fairly lonely counter example to that was Obama with the yes, we can. And what does that tell me? Well, it tells me that we have a dearth of leadership coming out that is inspiring people to see the positives in this debate. Uh, and it makes it very easy for the negatives to get so much attention. Um, I personally think it was a mistake to make a decision on the Yes campaign not to invoke influencers and celebrities. And I think you could have had a wonderful campaign celebrating great Indigenous, Indigenous and non-Indigenous artists and sports people coming out and giving their reasons, um, showing leadership for uh, why this is a good thing for Australia to do. Um, but that's just a personal opinion. Yeah. Um, don't worry, we often fuse our personal opinions with our <laughs> attitudes on objective analysis of technology on this show. And we're probably winding up um, at this point. So thanks so much for your time, Andrew. It's been great to have you on and hopefully we can have you back again. Lizzie, any sort of parting thoughts or or reflections before we um, leave it for another episode? No, but I think it would be really interesting to talk to you again, Andrew, after this voice campaign is finished and see what, you know, what the landscape what we can learn from it and what academics are thinking. So, yeah, I look forward to that chat too. Well, hopefully I'll have some insights because I'm working on a big project with other political scientists where we're uh, mopping up all the social media data and mainstream media data to be able to map the contours of this debate and trying to do it empirically, looking at, you know, we're talking 30, 40 million posts here to be able to see the different discourses that are going on both the yes and the no side. Um, which when the referendum does occur should give us a pretty good understanding for why the vote lands the way that it does. So um, I, it's been a pleasure talking to both of you and, you know, you've got me thinking about lots of things and yeah. thank you for the invitation. Excellent. Well, hopefully that that becomes um, an analysis of the learnings rather than a post-mortem of the disaster, <laughs> um, your work. So um, a few months and we'll know. Um, thanks again, everyone, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. You've been listening to Burning Platforms, a podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. It was recorded on July 14 and produced on Gadigal Land by Jennifer Macy. Talk again soon.